Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. I'd like to read this passage for us and then I'll pray for us. All right. Starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning. That you would help us understand your word. That you would encourage the faint-hearted. That you would rebuke the backslidden. And that you would be gracious and open up the eyes of the blind. We ask for ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our passage today, we're seeing a transition take place. The whole, chapter, whole of chapter 13 up to this point has been what is called the parabolic discourse. And so this right here marks a transition. Jesus leaves from teaching the crowds. And as he leaves, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And while in Nazareth, he does something that is very common that we see Jesus do. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and he teaches. And while he's teaching, he's telling the people who are present that this prophetic fulfillment is being fulfilled in their midst right now. The people are astonished at his wisdom, at his works. And they ask four questions regarding who Jesus is. They make four assumptions of who Jesus is. And then they ask the same question at the end. There's, there's bookends in this passage. How does he do this? And then four questions, and then how does he do this? And they end up offended at Jesus. And Jesus explains to his disciples why. Because a prophet is not 
welcome in his hometown or household. And so because of that, Jesus does not perform many miracles. Because of Nazareth's unbelief. Throughout history, we see something take place with the people of God. This isn't just a common thing or a, a, a modern day thing that happens. We read about it in the Old Testament as well. If we were to look at the history of the church, we would see it within the church as well. Throughout history, when the people of God become familiar with God, they assume that they know God. If you read the Old Testament, you see this happen countless of times as Israel does not do what is right in the eyes of God, and they assume what they think is right in the eyes of God. And then God judges them. We see this throughout the history in the church. The church becomes familiar with God. They assume that they know God. And then they do what is evil in the sight of God. There was a man named Charles Simeon who lived in a time like this where the people assumed that they knew God. He was a pastor in Cambridge in the 18th century or the 1700s. He became pastor of the Holy Trinity Church when he was 23. He came from a tradition where he preached through books of the Bible, verse by verse, teaching them what the main point of that passage was, showing them how the gospel made a connection how all Scripture pointed to Jesus. Believe it or not, though, during this time, when Charles Simeon became a Christian, it was said that he at college was one of maybe a dozen people who were Christian. And so, when Charles Simeon became the pastor of this church and started preaching gospel-centered messages, there was a divide in the church. There were people that would lock their pews. What does that mean? We've got chairs here. We don't deal with pews anymore. That's the old thing. The Catholic church pews are evil. I know that. But there was a time in history when you would pay for your seat in the church. There was a door on the side of the pew and they would give you a key. And the pews that were closer were more expensive and the pews that were further away were less expensive. And so as Charles Simeon is the pastor of this church, the people locked their pews and refused to show up to the Sunday morning service. Meaning that if there were any guests, they stood. Not only that, but to add injury to insult, the people of the church got to choose who the preacher was for the night service. Guess what? Charles Simeon was not chosen to be the preacher of the night service. The associate pastor was chosen and was paid more. For five years this happened, and then once the associate pastor left, uh, the people wanted 
not Charles Simeon. And so for the next seven years, chose somebody else to preach the night service. But it doesn't stop there. The people were so offended at his message that one story says there were a group of college students that were hanging out at the door that he would exit to ambush him and beat him up. Now, he didn't happen to go out that door that day, and so he was spared. But it wasn't uncommon for him on his way home to be pelted with pebbles or rotten eggs for preaching the gospel. Have our churches become familiar with Jesus? Now I'm thankful that our relationship is a little bit better in the early years than what it was for Charles Simeon. Nobody's pegged me with rotten eggs yet. I hope that doesn't happen. But throughout history, one thing that tends to happen is when a generation becomes familiar with Jesus, they become blind to Jesus. They assume that they know Jesus because they know certain stories about Jesus. Doesn't it say in some part of the Bible that only God can judge me? Yes, but there's fuller context there. Isn't there this one story about Jesus and the Samaritan? We start to assume and become familiar with Jesus. And what tends to happen is that causes blindness to Jesus. And so this morning in three points, what we will see is Jesus having an unlikely homecoming. It's verses 53 through 54. In our second point, we will see that the people of Nazareth were a little too familiar with Jesus. It was too close to home. It's verses 54 through 57. And then in our third point, we will see Jesus' response to those who were offended by him. That's 57 through 58. Let me say this again. Familiarity with Jesus can cause blindness to Jesus. Let's look at the first few verses. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Jesus was teaching parables to the crowds. He had gotten into a boat and he had shoved off to sea just a little bit because the crowds were so massive and they were pressing in on him. And so he taught from a boat and he used parables to do so. He used parables to do so because what we're told is the people's hearts grew dull. They were just looking for signs and wonders from him. And so he used parables. But this is the important transition that we have to know as we are moving forward today in this passage. Is what were the parables about? 
The parables were about what the kingdom of heaven was like. And what are we seeing in the passage this morning? That Jesus is rejected in his hometown. So Matthew, as he's setting up this account for us, he's warning us too. He's telling us something. As the parables reveal what the kingdom of heaven is like, there will be those who will reject the kingdom of heaven. There will be those who will even reject you. And so after Jesus' parabolic discourse, because Jesus is human, he goes home. We don't know why he goes home. We might be able to assume, or I could suggest, that he is honoring his mother, when she comes to him and asks him to speak with him, that now he's honoring her and going home to see what was the matter and what she wanted. But we don't get the full context of why Jesus goes home. In Mark and Luke, we're not told why Jesus goes to his hometown. He just goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And as he goes to Nazareth on the Sabbath, he teaches in the synagogue. This is Jesus' practice. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and teaches. And what's the outcome of him teaching? Look with me. We see what the outcome is. He comes to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. They were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. They looked at Jesus and they marveled. In some areas, we... See why they were astonished. Because he spoke with a sense of authority that the people had not heard. Jesus spoke with a sense of conviction. He spoke with a sense of absolute truth. Absolute certainty in what he was saying. There weren't... Well, ums, or I think, or it's possibly like this. No, what Jesus taught from the Scriptures was with certainty. And so, as he was teaching, the people, wherever he went, were astonished. The longest sermon that we see Jesus preach was, can be read by us in about 15 minutes. All it takes is Jesus' 15-minute sermons to cause people to leave going, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. Jesus speaks with authority. Jesus speaks with certainty that what He is saying is certain. It's true. So here's the question as I was coming to this passage that my mind was raising, and I think this is the good question when we come to a passage like this to ask this question. What was Jesus teaching? What was he so certain about? What left the people saying, wow, Jesus was preaching from Isaiah 61. 
Luke gives us a bit of a fuller account in chapter 6 of Isaiah 61. This has already been quoted for us in Matthew, where God would send His Spirit to rest upon His chosen servant. That this chosen servant would preach and proclaim a message that would set captives free. What Jesus is doing is He's going to His hometown, He's standing up in the synagogue, and He is reading from Isaiah 61, and He's saying, I fulfill this prophecy. I am the Son of David, the Messiah, the One who has been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim justice to the captives, to set them free. Jesus is showing that He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. That He is the Messiah. So before we move on any further, this is the question that each of us need to come to a decision to. We need to come to a resolution. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the King? Do you believe that Jesus fulfills what Isaiah 61 prophesied about? Do you? Do you trust the certainty of Jesus' teaching? Do you trust His words? Because as we move on, we see what happens when we assume that we know Jesus. We see what happens when we put an identity on Jesus and not let Jesus speak for Jesus. So we come to our second point. We see that the people of Nazareth were a little too close to home. Look with me in the next part of verse 54. As they were astonished at Jesus' works, what do they say? They, they acknowledge something. They say with their lips, from what they've seen with their eyes and have heard with their ears, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They're confused. They're hearing the wisdom. They're internalizing the wisdom. Jesus' teaching is causing them to think about what He is saying. They are marveling at the wisdom that Jesus is teaching with. And so they hear it with their ears. And they're seeing His works being done with their eyes. I, I'm, I'm realizing this right now as I'm, I'm preaching. I love it when this happens. 
What does Jesus say in the parables as he's explaining them? This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. This prophetic fulfillment, what is Jesus is saying over here in the beginning of Matthew 13, applies to Nazareth too, because they acknowledge that they're hearing the wisdom. They acknowledge that they're seeing the miraculous signs and works. And yet, because of us reading this passage, we know that they're left offended. After they acknowledge this, here they ask four questions. They ask four familiar questions. They look at Jesus and they say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This guy is speaking with wisdom and he has mighty works that he's doing. And yet, isn't this the carpenter's son? I, I, if I look under my table, I, I see the stamp made by Jesus. The, the stool I sit on was crafted from his father's hands. Jesus, he's in the line of carpentry. He's a carpenter, just like his dad was. Just like Joseph was. They assume his identity. This is the carpenter. But what else? They then ask, is this not the son of Mary? Or is not his mother called Mary? We remember when Mary cried because her and Joseph lost Jesus. We remember consoling Mary and telling her it's going to be okay. I remember sitting down with, with Mary as she is frustrated with her other kids, just wanting to know the best way to discipline them. I saw Mary one time discipline Joseph maybe a little too sternly than she probably should have. Mary's been here almost her whole life. We, we, we know her. She's a pretty ordinary person. She gets her water just like the rest of us. They assume they know Jesus' family. Then they look to his brothers and his sisters. We know his brothers, they say. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not the betrayer Judas. You know, those four, they were kind of hard boys. They gave Mary and Joseph some problems. I bet that's why Joseph probably had some ulcers. I don't, we don't know if Joseph had ulcers or not. They were bullies to my children. Jesus' sisters, they're pretty all right. 
but they're still here with us. This is as plain of a family as you can possibly get. And Jesus has the audacity to come up, teach on Isaiah 61, and say, I'm that guy. Think about it like this. Some of you are old enough to have class reunions. Some of you one day hopefully will be old enough to have class reunions. Imagine going back to your class reunion and the most plain and ordinary person And if you're thinking about that person right now, it's probably not that person. It's the most unexpected, unlikely person who gets up and says to themselves, one day I'm going to be the man or the woman that changes the world. And they start going around saying that. And you say, really? I, I know, I remember your family. You were a pretty average student. This is what's taking place. A very ordinary, what looks to be like an ordinary person is getting up and saying, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Son of David, the long-awaited one who's come to take away the sins of the world. But their familiarity of Jesus, their assumption of who Jesus is, the downfall of them knowing of Jesus, but not knowing Jesus, leads them to unbelief as we see. Because they refuse to see Him for who He is. The King of Kings. I think we could look at the disciples' response and see their response is a little bit different from the people of Nazareth. As Jesus asks them, who do you say, or or, who do the people say that I am? And And they say, well, some look at you as a prophet. Maybe John the Baptist. Or this person or that person. And Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? And and Peter says, you're the Son of God. And Jesus tells them, correct. It's only by the Spirit that you've come to that conclusion. What's taking place here? What's happening in this passage is a very familiar thing that happens throughout history. Happens in the church. We strip Jesus of being king. We water him down and make him more familiar than we should. We water down the reality of who Jesus is because 
at the end of the day, our pride does not want to elevate Jesus to being the King of Kings. We want to be little demigods. We want to be the kings of our own universe. And so in our pride, we water down Jesus. We do not see him as king, as Messiah. And so we come up with clever, worldly ways to think about how we can reach people by watering who Jesus is down. I was having a conversation about this with a man at the Y this past week. He was talking to me about retirement. We were talking about the church and how membership in the church is on the decline and he just doesn't understand because it seems like there's more opportunities now more than ever for people to hear about Jesus. Could it be That why membership is on the decline? Could it be that why statisticians are saying, come 2070, half the population will claim to be Christians, if that? Is because we have become familiar with Jesus. Instead of teaching and preaching and seeing him as the King of Kings, the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 61, we have watered him down in such a way where he becomes a pocket Jesus, a buffet Jesus, a Jesus that I'll get behind if he looks a little bit like me. A Jesus where we pick and choose what we want to believe about him. A Jesus that I'm all right with saying he is love, but we're not going to talk about the passages that he preaches on hell. A Jesus that we walk away with saying, well, of course, Jesus would have been Republican because he would have been about free speech. Or, of course, Jesus would have been a Democrat because he served and cared for the poor. Could it be that we have gotten so far away from the true Jesus that we are now living in a time where we assume we know Jesus? We give him the identity that makes us the most comfortable to continue to allow us to live in our own pride, our own sin. So this is the question we must ask and that we're faced with right now. Who is Jesus? John tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. We are told that Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with us. Paul tells us that Jesus was from the beginning. That he was God, but he did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming like us. In Colossians, Paul tells us that he is the invisible God made visible for us. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is God with us. 
This is why the people looked and marveled at him as he spoke with authority and yet were so far away with knowing who he was because they assumed they knew who he was. They somehow were able to feel the authority and see the works and yet miss him. We must be careful not to assume we know Jesus. But we can be certain to know Jesus. We can be certain to know Jesus by picking up His Word and reading it or putting our earbuds in or turning up the volume to listen to His Word. We can know Jesus by spending fellowship with Jesus. There's something that takes place, isn't there? For those who become familiar with Jesus. The most tragic reality of all in this passage. They asked their last question. Where then does this man get all these things? And instead of being convinced, they're offended at him. They reject Jesus. Because they don't know Jesus, and they assume to know Jesus, When Jesus says, this is the real me, they're offended at him and reject him. And he tells us, as he tells his disciples, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Luke gives us a better picture of why Jesus is saying this. He's saying this because Jesus looks back to the prophets of old and and says, the prophets of old were rejected by their own people and so they go to those who weren't their own people. We see the prophet is being rejected. And because the prophet is rejected, Jesus does not do many mighty works. We're told it was because of their unbelief. And you want to be care- I want to be careful right here, because he doesn't do these many mighty works because of their unbelief. If you're here this morning, and you're in a season of doubt, let me encourage you real quick that Jesus says that even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, even faith the size of a mustard seed is enough faith. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Nazareth because of their unbelief, not their small belief or 
little belief, but their unbelief, their non-existent belief that He is Emmanuel, God with us, that He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Their familiarity with Jesus, their assumption of who Jesus should be, leads to their unbelief and outright rejection and offense to Jesus. Which means this. We should not be surprised that those who are familiar with Jesus will one day reject Jesus. That should cause us to mourn and be sad and to pray earnestly. But this means another thing, church. As we know the real Jesus, teach the real Jesus, and worship the real Jesus, you too will be rejected. Jesus begins part of the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are those who are persecuted. Let me say it like this. As as Jesus is teaching the parables and He's explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like, as He finishes it up and He goes to His hometown, He is warning His disciples, you too will be rejected. There will be times when you plant the seed on hard soil and you will be rejected because I've been rejected. But Jesus tells us to take heart because if you are rejected, the people are not rejecting you, but Christ that is in you. So how do we fight as I conclude here, I want to be just very super practical. How do we fight against familiarity in our own lives, in our own hearts? How do we fight against becoming familiar with Jesus in our church? We look to Jesus as King. It sounds like a pretty simple answer, doesn't it? And yet, because of sin and temptation, it can often be the hardest practicality to live out in our lives. We're forgetful people. And one of the things that we tend to forget the quickest is that Jesus is King of our lives. That He is Lord of our lives. That because we are dead in Christ, because He has died for us, and because we have our faith in Jesus, that He has risen from the grave and taken our sins, and that we are redeemed by His life, death, and resurrection, it's so incredibly easy to forget. Forget that Jesus is King. Forget that Jesus is Lord. So can I encourage us with this? When we know Jesus, when we see Jesus as King of Kings, 
that makes the reality that he's the friend of sinners all the more amazing. That Jesus, the King of kings, who is given authority over everything, humbles himself by becoming like one of us to dwell with sinners and tax collectors. The King of kings, the King of kings who knows everything about you. He knows how ugly your ugly side is. And it's uglier than we realize. The King of Kings sees that and he's not put off. This is what makes Jesus worth worshiping. Is that because he's God in flesh, the King of Kings, he still dwells with sinners. He still saves sinners. And so this means that we as individuals and we as a church need to be reminded of this daily. And I am not talking about just a a one-hour time in the morning. Although that's a great start, set reminders in your phones at lunch, at dinner, Pray and ask God that God would make Jesus more majestic in your life. Privately, I've been going through Ephesians and I've been struck at how Paul, in the first chapter, approaches the Ephesians. And I think this would help us as individuals and as a church to pray this prayer, if we want to keep Christ as majestic, as the King of Kings. Listen to what Paul says here in Ephesians. Listen to this prayer. He doesn't pray for their prosperity. He doesn't pray for their blessings. He doesn't pray for their healings. Listen to this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here it is. This is what he remembers in his prayers to pray for for the Ephesians. Listen here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, what Paul is praying for this church is that they have a view of Jesus that is so majestic than when they first came to know Jesus. Do you take time to pray and ask 
that Jesus would become greater in your life and that you would become lesser? Do you take time to persevere and to continue to move one step forward, making Christ Jesus your own because he's made you his own? Let's push back against this culture of familiarity. Knowing that when we are rejected, people are rejecting Christ, not us. That we are living out the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. And we ask that Jesus would be greater in our lives. That he would be so incredibly majestic. That he would be on the throne of our hearts and nothing else. Amen.